0: The story of Stephen McAfee is one that will send shivers down your spine. It's a chilling tale of friendship gone wrong, of a bond that was broken in the most gruesome way imaginable. Welcome back to our channel and today we will dig deep about the horror case of Stephen McAfee form his vanished without a trace to the moment his body pots was found. We are confronted with a trail of evidence that is both shocking and horrifying. All that was inflicted by his best friend. But what could drive to commit such a heinous act? What dark secrets lay hidden beneath the surface of their friendship, waiting to be uncovered? Join us as we venture deep into the heart of this mystery, peeling back the layers of deception and betrayal to reveal the shocking truth. This is a story that will leave you breathless. A cautionary tale of the dangers that can lurk within the people we trust the most. This is the case of Stephen McAfee. The Great Lakes Wolverines and the commencement of the automotive sector are just two of the many things that are used to define Michigan, which is where our tale starts today. Other things that have been used to describe Michigan include... Michigan is a prominent state in the automotive and agricultural industries and today has a population of around 10 million people. The state's economy was previously thriving in the early 1900s owing to Ford and several other automobile makers. Stephen McAfee was a native of this region. He was born on the 26th of December 1996 to his parents, Suzanne and Mike, who were both residents of this area. Stephen McAfee was a resident. Stephen spent his childhood in Macomb Township, a civil township that is located within the Detroit metropolitan area in the state of Michigan. Even though it is only 15 miles northeast of Detroit, Macomb Township has a considerably lower rate of violent crime than Motor City, though with only one violent crime occurring per 100,000 people each year. This is despite its near proximity to the city. This is a significant departure from Detroit, which is 20 or more years old. Located on the southeastern shore of Lake Michigan, the hamlet of Macomb Township exudes a laid-back, frontier ambience despite its proximity to the water and its abundance of agricultural land and golf facilities and Stephen's upbringing in Macomb Township was certainly enhanced by this factor, which is only one of the many that contributed to the township's overall appeal. Stephen went to Ebeling Elementary School while he was a youngster. He did so together with his older brother Jonathan and his older sister Kate. The first indications of Asperger's Syndrome emerged not long after he started school at Ebeling Elementary, And despite the fact that Stephen was ultimately and properly diagnosed with Asperger's, he refused to let the diagnosis to define who he was. As he got older, he continued his study, and in 2014, he enrolled in Arts Academy in the Woods, a school that is designed to fast-track the academic careers of pupils who are very talented creatively. Stephen attended this particular school since the curriculum there allowed him to explore the things that interested him. He was a creative thinker, had a passion for playing the drums, and harbored aspirations of a career in the music industry. In addition to this, Stephen was an extremely submissive young man. Even though he was well-liked in the neighborhood. He had a reputation for staying out of trouble and never being a source of conflict for anybody else. He was said to have a kind heart. He did not engage in aggressive behavior, and his sole motivation in life was to hang out with his bodies. The day was March 9, 2016, and the month was March. Stephen's life continued on as normal despite the fact that it was a Wednesday. There were no noteworthy activities on his agenda. Later on same day, he sent a message on Snapchat to his ex-girlfriend Tara, which included a picture of him playing about with the shopping trolleys at the grocery store where he shopped. Soon after that, he went home for supper, and then he sat on the couch for the rest of the night while watching TV and browsing through his phone. His mother Susan had been working all day, and at some point around midnight, she made the decision to go to bed. She had been awake all day. It was almost 2.30 in the morning when his father Michael likewise made the decision to call it a night. And Michael then remarked, Good night, Stephen. Stephen had already wished you evening, but he intended to remain up for a little longer. And Stephen's behavior in this regard was not at all out of the ordinary either. Michael decided to go to bed as nothing out of the norm had occurred. On the next day, however, while Susan was getting ready for the day and walking through the room in which her youngest son slept, she saw that Stephen was nowhere to be seen. She felt confident that Stephen did not have any obligations at this early hour of the day. In addition to that, he had forgotten to bring any of the equipment that he would normally bring along with him. The bedroom still contained his phone charger for some reason. In point of fact, He was already scheduled to see Susan later on that day. Since Stephen was not yet able to drive, he and Susan had planned to go out that afternoon in order for Stephen to get some experience behind the wheel by driving around the neighborhood streets. Because of this, if he had chosen to leave the land at that time, he would have been required to do it on foot. In addition to this, unlike normal, he had not left any messages behind which was really strange, and there was no answer on his cell phone when she tried to call him. It appears as though Stephen disappeared in the middle of the night without any prior notification or explanation. On that particular day, over a dozen phone calls were sent to Stephen's mobile phone. However, similar as in the past, these calls went directly to voicemail, Stephen's closet included all of the fresh outfits that he had planned to wear, indicating that he had every intention of returning home in a timely manner. Stephen's family and friends began searching the surrounding areas, including the homes and parks that he was known to visit, but they were unsuccessful in their search. There was no more information obtained from his friends or family members either. The last time Stephen was seen on social media was in that Snapchat message from the day before, and the last verifiable sighting of Stephen was on March 13, 2016, at 2.30 pm, when his own father, Michael, saw him back at his property. After three days, a complaint of a missing person was made. However, despite the fact that this formally prompted police enforcement to search for the young guy they were unsuccessful in their efforts to locate him. In the end, the local chapter of Crime Stoppers offered a reward of many thousand dollars to anyone who could provide information that led to the location of Stephen, and multiple billboards were posted all throughout the surrounding region. Along with the other people, Stephen's close friends searched the forested area next to Stephen's house for any hints or indicators, but the search, which was conducted without any prompting, turned up absolutely nothing at all. In addition, the family's decision to employ a private investigator did not provide any useful results. Around this time, a number of hypotheses concerning Stephen's disappearance began to emerge in the public consciousness. Stephen may have ended himself at an abandoned drug house, also called a bando, and as a consequence, he might have been murdered there. His lifeless corpse would then have been recovered in one of the numerous abandoned houses that are located in and around Detroit. This was one of the prevailing ideas at the time. In spite of the fact that Detroit was once a manufacturing powerhouse in the early to middle of the 1900s, technology began to advance throughout the course of the decades, which resulted in changes to the manner in which automobiles and other mechanical things were produced. In addition, the arrival of the worldwide recession in the latter part of the 2000s caused a significant drop in the number of individuals purchasing automobiles in the United States. This has a significant bearing on the city of Detroit. Tens of thousands of employees lost their jobs in the years that followed, and as a direct result, a great number of people left the area, either to different parts of the country or different parts of the state of Michigan. As a direct result of this, the city of Detroit currently has an amazing number of deserted structures and residences that have been destroyed by fire, many of which are used by criminals as makeshift hideouts. The idea that Stephen may have been killed inside of one of these bandos, on the other hand, was seen as very improbable by his close friends and family members. Stephen was terrified of engaging in any kind of illegal activity and because he was unable to drive, he was unable to travel very far. As a result, Stephen was unable to escape his hometown. However, that was the best lead that anyone who was not particularly close to Stephen had. To put it more succinctly, his disappearance was first thought to be an instance of him being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this notion was where the case would stand for a considerable amount of time. Because there was no further development in the case, in spite of the unending anguish that his family would have to endure over the course of the following year, the investigation was closed. This would be up to the month of April in 2017. A young woman and her father went to the sheriff's office in Malcolm County on the 26th of April. They were there to report a missing person. She said to the investigators that while they were there, A close friend of hers had confided a very sinister secret in her that neither of them had ever spoken with anyone else. The revelation was made by Yvette McDonald, who said that she had helped her ex-boyfriend transfer and dispose of a corpse, and that she had communicated this information with her friend just one month before it became public knowledge. Around this time last year, Stephen was a kind and forgiving person. As a result of his good demeanor, he had a great many fruitful interactions with other people and gained a large number of friends. However, we will not continue with this one. Yvette told in a friend that her ex-boyfriend had asked her how she would react if she found out that Stephen McAfee had passed away one morning in April of 2016. She retorted by stating that she would miss him to which he reacted by claiming that he was already being missed by her. Later on that morning, he brought her with him into the nearby woods. Within the boundaries of Bruce Township, the woodlands might be found somewhere near the intersection of 34 Mile Road and Van Dyke Avenue. Enrufiaco was a vet's boyfriend's name at the time. Stephen and Enrufiaco were the same age, and Enrufiaco resided in the neighborhood of Ray Township. In point of fact, Stephen counted him as one of his closest pals. The first time the two had interacted was when they were both five years old and attending kindergarten at Eberlin Elementary School in Macomb Township. Andrew struggled with high-functioning autism, while Stephen struggled with emotional disorders. Both of them had unique needs throughout their lives. Both of them being gods, got into a lot of trouble when they were younger, but the two of them had a lot of fun together. Andrew then told Yvette that this was the area that he had shot and killed Stephen a month prior, and the reason that he wanted to tell her is because he required assistance to move the body, and it was surprising that she complied. No questions asked, no attempt to inform the police, and no hesitation. When Andrew and Yvette arrived at the destination in the woods, And Ruth then told Yvette that this was the area that he had shot and killed Stephen a month prior. After leaving that region, the two went away for a month before coming back to properly dispose of Stephen. When Macomb County Police heard the news from Yvette's acquaintance, they became quite frightened, and they did not waste any time investigating the situation. Yvette was taken into custody late that afternoon and Andrew was taken into custody only a few hours after Yvette had been taken into custody. Andrew was arrested by the police, and nearly as soon as he was taken into jail, he admitted to having murdered Steve and McAfee. I picked him up from his house, all right, so when we got out of the car, I gave him the buck, and they handed him the back. However, he wasn't doing the money, so I was sort of like, wait, what's going on? And so then he attacked me and then we began wrestling it out, and then he grabbed mine, and then he got the pistol and aimed it at me, and so I fled, you know, I'm distracted, and ran till I stole it, and then we were relaxing. Andrew claims that he only killed Stephen out of necessity in order to protect himself. After Stephen's father went to bed on the 10th of March, early in the morning, he was picked up by Andrew, and the two of them drove to a distant location. This was done so that Stephen could purchase marijuana from Andrew. However, once they arrived and Andrew delivered the bag to Stephen, he allegedly assaulted Andrew. The reason for this is unclear. During their struggle on the ground, Andrew was able to get his revolver from his pocket, but he made a critical error and shot Stephen in the stomach by mistake. Andrew, in a state of fear put an end to the man's suffering before stealing Stephen's cell phone and escaping the location. After that, he went for a drive of 18 miles to the intersection of 34 Mile and Chona Road before throwing Stephen's mobile phone away in a garbage in the area. Later on that day, detectives from the sheriff's office conducted searches at two potentially relevant places. The first was the empty property in Bruce Township and the second was Fiaco's house in Ray Township. Both were located in Ray Township. Both of these places yielded evidence in human bones, and Stephen would ultimately direct the detectives to the precise area on the property where the murder had place. The lower jaw and clothes belonging to Stephen were located near the inn. This includes the jacket he was wearing as well as a baseball cap. The lower jawbone that belonged to Stephen was the key piece of evidence that allowed for a conclusive identification. It was around this time that the detectives, with the help of the confessions made by Andrew and Yvette, as well as the evidence gathered from the various crime locations, began to piece together the remaining details of the scenario. Andrew and Yvette showed up at Stephen's place carrying an axe that they had brought with them from Andrew's residence. After arriving at the location, they amputated Stephen's lower legs and removed his head. The unfortunate reality is that the remainder of Stephen's body, including his head, will never be discovered, as his legs were packed in a duffel bag and buried in a different location than his head. Both graves were two feet deep. In order to keep the bones from being a nerve, Andrew and Yvette had poured some cement on top of them. After then, the duffel bag was destroyed by fire. The accusations that were filed against Andrew Fiaco increased when more information about the investigation became available. In point of fact, it was mentioned that Andrew had been questioned by authorities on the subject of his friend's disappearance, Weiss, in the year 2016. Both times, though, he denied any participation in the crime as well as any knowledge of it. When the investigators, and later on, we found out how dishonest Andrew truly was, it was a very unsettling revelation for all of us. On the day that Stephen was reported missing, he informed his family that he had no clue where Stephen had gone or why he hadn't returned home. He went as far as posting fake remarks on Stephen's Facebook wall, telling everyone how much he missed him. He expressed this sentiment in one of those posts by writing, I wish I knew where he was. If I had known, I would have notified the authorities earlier. It was difficult for him to communicate with anyone, including his own parents and even with me. He was not a talkative person at all and, in fact, spent a lot of time by himself. I would give him lectures as a father about how he has to check in with his parents before he goes someplace or does anything or how if he went from one location to the next, he needed to let them know when he was going and when he got at his destination. I would do this before he went anywhere or did something. However, he did not engage in any of those activities at any point. I think about him all the time. Brother, I beg you to please return home. We all think about you and miss you very much. After all that took place, Andrew Fiaco, who was just 19 years old at the time, was ultimately charged with the crime. In addition to felony weapons charges, he was charged with first-degree murder, disinterring and mutilating the body of a deceased person, and lying to a law enforcement official. Yvette McDonald, who was 18 years old at the time, was charged with accessory after the fact to a felony, disinterment and mutilation of a dead corpse as well as lying to a police officer. Yvette McDonald was also charged with lying to a police officer. While Andrew was not granted release, Yvette's bond was set at $20,000 so that she may finish her final year at Macomb Community College. Andrew was not granted bail. The two were finally brought to trial in 2019. However, over the course of the proceedings, Numerous plot twists were shown to be inaccurate. The findings of the medical examiner were the initial piece of evidence that was brought to light. In spite of Andrew's assertions that he was acting in self-defense when he shot Stephen, the medical records indicate otherwise. First, it was reported that Stephen had been shot three times, twice in the head, once in the front and once in the rear, and once in the stomach. However, because of the angles from which Stephen had been shot, it was highly improbable that it had occurred during a rough battle on the ground. Hence, Andrew's statements were proven to be false. Additionally, the allegation was a significant departure from how other people viewed Stephen. It was completely inconsistent with the rest of his actions. In addition, the prosecution said that Anru had removed Stephen's headphones, smartphone, and watch as trophies after Stephen's murder, which demonstrated premeditation and also established a motivation for the crime. Not only Stephen's mental state, but also Andrew’s, was called into question many times over the course of the trial, which caused tensions to rise on multiple occasions. In addition, Claims that Anru had previously sexually abused Stephen surfaced at this time, as well as allegations that Anru became envious when Stephen spoke to his girlfriend. It was at this time when both of these allegations surfaced. Yvette even divulged to the authorities the information that her boyfriend had informed her that he was a member of the mafia and that this was the reason he had to kill Stephen. Her boyfriend had told her that this was the reason why he had to kill Stephen. Even at one point during the trial, the prosecution and the chief defense attorney were compelled to engage in a full-on yelling war. I'll be plain, this is just like the amateurs. However, after some time had passed, the jury reached a decision. They met to discuss the case for a total of 11 hours over the course of two days. But they reached a decision on February 7, 2019. They concluded that Enrufiako had purposefully murdered Stephen and that the murder was not justified. But they also believed that the murder was not premeditated, thus, they found him guilty of second-degree murder. Although they believed that Enrufiako had purposely killed Stephen, they believed that the murder had not been premeditated. After the conviction was reached, he was given a jail term ranging from 50 to 70 years. After pleading guilty to mutilation of a body and being an accomplice, Yvette McDonald was given a sentence of one year in jail and three years of probation. She was also ordered to pay restitution to the victim. Despite the fact that the phrase was only a few words long, it was mentioned that she was afraid of Andrew and that there had been instances of violence between the two in the past. The judge, Jennifer Fornton, addressed Andrew in front of the whole courtroom as the sentence was being handed down and stated, you destroyed not only Stephen's life, his family and friends, but you also destroyed the life of your own family as well as your own. And then, for a period of 13 months, you allowed everyone to wallow in dread and pain, although with some room for hope, which is probably certainly the aspect that is the worst You continued to tell lies, you continued to commit crimes, you continued to conceal, and you continued to cause everyone's lives to be thrown into chaos. You drew Yvette McDonald into it, and in the process, you ruined another family. Even though the sentencing for second-degree murder was one that carried a very long term, Stephen McAfee's family was devastated and disappointed with the verdict. Although they are pleased that Anru will be incarcerated for a very long amount of time, they think that charging Anru with first-degree murder is more appropriate. And I really can't say that I blame them. At the very least, according to my point of view, this seems to be a case of first-degree murder. It appears as though there is little room for doubt that on the fatal morning of March 10, 2016, Anru contacted Stephen to arrange up a meeting time drove out fully armed, brought Stephen to an isolated place, and then killed him when the time was appropriate. And a possible reason was present. In fact, there were numerous of them. So why go to such great lengths? Andrew informed the judge before the sentence was handed down that he was missing Stephen, whom he described as someone he believed to be a friend and someone who he looked up to in many different ways. He revealed, Sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat. I am willing to accept whole responsibility. It was Stephen who... I think about him all the time. I truly apologize. And the rest of the town is beginning to feel Stephen's absence as well. Stephen was a young guy who never had anything negative to say about anybody else in the Macomb Township neighborhood. He was known as a shining example to his peers. He was submissive, kind, nurturing, and compassionate all at the same time. A gifted artist and musician who, more significantly, was a good friend was snatched away from him far too soon by someone in who he had placed his faith and security on several occasions. By the way, Stephen's mother, father, brother, and sister are all examples of what a wonderful family should look like. It was extremely evident from trial footage and the media how much support, love, and care they showed Steven, not only after he went away but also, more crucially, before he passed away as well. Steven's passing away was a tragic loss for all of them. I also noticed how much of a fun-loving and creative guy Steven actually was, and I feel like he's made a tiny mark on my life to simply from the research that I did for this case. Thank you for your attention to our case today. What are your thoughts on the circumstances surrounding the death of Stephen McAfee? And do you believe that Anrufiako should have been charged with first degree murder? Please share your ideas in the comments section below. I would want to express my gratitude to everyone who has been following. Please continue to look out for one another. Goodbye.